I think the question of whether the mining industry in Queensland can implement HRO principles is a really interesting question and an important one. I would offer the observation that many of the characteristics of HROs are actually well known to the mining companies. It's just that they're not called HROs. It's just it's labelled differently. Are the Queensland mining companies doing all of the practices that need to be delivered? Probably not. And are they doing all of them to the same high standard? Probably not. And that's where the opportunity for improvement exists. That was Peter Wilkinson talking about HROs, or High Reliability Organisations. And this is a subject we're going to spend this whole episode talking about, because I believe HROs are the way forward for the Queensland mining and quarrying industry. A man has died after an industrial accident at a coal mine in the state's far north. Now we want to go to that incident in Queensland. The 44-year-old was working 700 metres underground when there was a collapse. This is Rethinking Safety, a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. My name is Sean Brady, and I wrote the Brady Review into fatal accidents in the Queensland mining industry. In this podcast, we'll unpack the findings of the review with the goal to help the Queensland mining industry rethink its approach to safety. You'll hear from leaders in the industry, the regulator, the union, and leading academics and experts in the field of safety. As we ask the question, what does a safer future look like? This is Episode 6, High Reliability Organisations. So in our last episode, we briefly introduced the concept of high reliability organisations, or HROs. These are organisations that have very few incidents despite operating in hazardous and complex environments. And you heard that these organisations possess five characteristics, two of which we already explained in the last episode, a deference to expertise and a preoccupation with failure. In today's episode, we'll talk about the other three characteristics, a sensitivity to operations, a reluctance to simplify, and a commitment to resilience. But before we do that, we need to talk about what these characteristics produce. They produce a concept called mindfulness. Now, what is this mindfulness, and why does it play such a significant role in reducing incidents? Well, to understand that, we need to explore the five characteristics in a lot more detail. And as we do this, I want you to keep something in mind, and that is the concept of a learning organisation. Because first and foremost, HROs are learning organisations. Now, learning organisations are going to be a big topic for today's episode, and we'll come back to what they're all about soon. But for now, we'll start this discussion with a brief introduction to HROs and their characteristics, and we'll finish this episode and finish this podcast series by handing over to the Queensland mining and quarrying industry to hear what their vision is for the future. And to start, here's Peter Wilkinson again. How would I describe a high-reliability organisation? They are organisations which consistently avoid serious incidents despite operating in environments that are characterised by high levels of inherent risk and operational complexity. Now Peter will run through the characteristics of these organisations. Firstly, a preoccupation with failure. The second one is a reluctance to simplify. Thirdly, a sensitivity to operations. Fourthly, a commitment to resilience. 
and lastly, a deference to expertise. With these characteristics I've mentioned, what's really important is that they're not looked at as discrete elements. You have to put them all together to make this work because it's only coherent as a whole. You can't be sensitive to operations without wondering and worrying about what can go wrong with your operations, and that's about the preoccupation with failure. So it's all interlinked. And as Peter said in our last episode, these characteristics lead to mindfulness in an organisation. What does he mean by mindfulness? It's about being mindful of the things that can go wrong and how you can detect whether things are going wrong and what you need to do to avoid them. So let's quickly step through these five characteristics, starting with one you've heard about in our last episode, a preoccupation with failure. We see a failure, and this is a fantastic learning opportunity. And unless we do that, people won't tell us what's going wrong. And as we all know, you can't manage things you don't know about. And Peter says it's not only about learning from incidents. So preoccupation with failure is also about thinking through what can go wrong, how can that happen, and how can I get information about things that are going wrong so I can manage them. So this is all about having chronic unease, avoiding complacency and detecting anomalies and the precursors to incidents, even when they're only in the form of weak signals. Now, importantly, chronic unease is not just a state of mind. It's also about having a set of practices which are aimed at detecting problems and rectifying them before they culminate in accidents. And this creates agency rather than fatalism, but only as long as you have a system to respond to these reports and learn from them. This is listening for the signs that you're drifting into failure. And because you're listening, you're learning. A deference to expertise. Now, what does that mean? So again, we spoke about this in the last episode. This is all about having the right people with the right expertise available and empowered to make decisions. So a deference to expertise can mean we need to make sure that expertise is available and not downgrade the expertise. And it's also about ensuring that you don't let hierarchy get in the way of listening to these people, which can be a tricky barrier to overcome. And it's worth saying that this is not just about deferring to experience or position in the hierarchy. As we mentioned in the last episode, it's about deferring to the person who has the expert knowledge for the situation you're in, no matter where they are in the organisation. Which brings up characteristic number three. A sensitivity to operations. Sensitivity to operations. What does that mean in practice? For me, it means that we need to pay careful attention to what our staff, what our employees, our contractors are doing at the point they come into contact with the hazards. So HROs pay a lot of attention to the front line where the real work gets done. How well are the systems and processes working, not from the perspective of somebody in the office, but from the perspective of people trying to implement the processes or operate the machinery, control the hazard? 
You've probably heard the expression work imagined versus work done, and this is a similar concept. You're interested in how work actually happens. This is very different from setting out procedures and believing that you'll have full compliance with them. Sensitivity to operations is therefore, at its core, accepting that drift into failure will happen and seeking to understand what it looks like on the front line. And because you're watching what's actually taking place on the front line, you're learning. Which brings up characteristic number four. A reluctance to simplify is an important HRO characteristic. So if you're working in a complex organisation like a mining company and you attempt to simplify your understanding of this environment too much, then by default, this simplification will result in you discarding information. But HROs know that some of the key learnings or weak signals are typically in the information that's discarded. So they avoid too much simplification and keep an open mind to the complexity around them. Uh, Let me give one example. When something goes wrong and there's an accident, it invariably involves human beings somewhere in that system. And if the incident investigation stops at the point where it says, ah, it was human error, that's a gross simplification. What type of human error? Why did they do what they did? And there are normally very good reasons for it, not least of which it's often been done that way for a long time and nobody's detected this drift away from how it should be done. So a reluctance to simplify doesn't allow simplistic explanations of why things have gone wrong. It interrogates more deeply the causes that underlie. So because you're interrogating more deeply, you're not discarding information. And because you're not discarding information, you can learn from it. Which brings up characteristic number five. An important HRO characteristic is that there is a genuine commitment to resilience. In this case, it means that we can suffer a setback, we can have a problem, but we can recover from it before the worst thing possible uh, that can happen actually happens. So a key part of this is that HROs expect things to go wrong. They expect surprises. They know that drift into failure will occur. So it's not that HROs are error-free, it's just that errors don't disable them. You know things will go wrong and you build resilience into your systems to cope with that. You've learned that you need redundancy. So these are the five characteristics of HROs. And taken together, they produce mindfulness in an organisation. And what does this mindfulness actually do? Well, it produces the capability to discover and manage unexpected events. Now let's hear from some of the people involved in the mining industry in Queensland. Let's start with Kate Dupere, the Commissioner for Resources, Safety and Health. I think right now there is a moment where everybody is listening. The report was a point that made us as an industry start talking. Yes, it was confronting because it highlighted our failures, but it started us to start talking on how we're going to carry on this journey. It is the first time where we have coal, mineral, quarries, all talking about HRO principles, HRO theories. The Commissioner makes an important point here. And if everyone is talking about HRO theories, what are they actually saying? Let's go to Bobby Foote, Head of Health, Safety and Environment at BHP Mitsubishi Alliance, to hear her thoughts. I think one of the things that 
HRO theory provides is it's a, it's an overall organisational theory. It's not just about safety, but it has huge benefits for safety, and we've certainly seen that within oil and gas. So it's a really a, a way of operating. When you start to sit down and look at those um, HRO principles, you might find that you've already got a program along those lines. You've just called it something different. I asked Bobby for an example of this. We've already had a key focus on really empowering the front line and sensitivity to operations and, and making sure that everybody understands that that is the customer. We didn't call it that. We've actually called it the BHP operating system um, and empowering the front line and serving your customer. But when you look into the principles of HRO, that can give a bit of colour and a few more pointers on how you can go about doing that more effectively. So one thing you heard in our last episode was the word safety does not appear in the title, high reliability organisations. HROs are not just about safety, they're all about being predictable. They're all about removing variability. Here's Rob Jackson from South32 talking about work they undertook in Cannington Mine to remove variability. Yeah, one of the phrases I've heard a few times in my career is safety first, production will follow. And it, it can be a little bit cliche, but I actually think it's spot on. If you can get all of your house in order and you're driving towards that stability and that lack of variability, you'll not only get the, the excellent safety outcomes, but you'll get better production outcomes as well. You haven't got people chopping and changing. You've actually got this, this stable operation that, that gets you the safety outcomes that you need and gets you the production outcomes that you want. One way South32 approached this was by focusing on reliable plans. I think fundamentals for me, probably one of the first ones that we really focused in on was how do we ensure that we have really good quality plans and then people are following those plans. We recognise that when you have a, a shift and people have to go and do some work and then that changes, it actually introduces a level of, of hazard and risk to those individuals. So as much of that that we could eliminate, the better. And this focus on plans is actually a sensitivity to operations. So we stopped asking the question, you know, how many metres did we cut today? How many tonnes did we hoist to the surface? And started asking the question, well, what was our planning compliance today? And what we saw was a, was a, was a fairly dramatic change in the, in the way that people were thinking. And we saw some fantastic outcomes as a result of that. So it all came down to drilling in on those elements around having great quality plans and then executing them well. And then also having an improvement feedback loop so we're continually improving what we're doing. So one of the key aspects of HROs is that it's not only about culture, but culture is very important. It's also about the systems and practices you use. And as Rob talks about the system they use, you'll also hear echoes of a difference to expertise. So it all comes down to having a good system. So we, we focused with a lot of energy in our system and we put in place what we call a, a management operating system, a MOS, a lot of people will call it. And that's a system that makes sure you've got the right people having the right conversations with the right information, making the right decisions at the right time. So it's, again, it's a pretty simple concept, quite hard to, to design and implement. And it actually is a, a real cultural sort of shift. So it's as much about having this, this framework as it is about having, having the cultural shift that comes with that. Here's Bobby Foot again, also talking about deference to expertise. We were talking earlier about um, deference to expertise and, and listening to the operators and maintainers about how they do the tasks. I think it's also important to listen to them about how the procedures best serve them. 
I think a really simple example from a plan task observation that I was involved in, we asked the operator, we noticed that at one step he actually did something different in the way that he drained the oil from the machine in a service. We said to him, oh, why do you do that step here instead of doing it over there? And he said, well, if I do it here, I'll get covered in oil. So I've quickly learned that that's not what I do. So what Bobby is saying here is that by deferring to expertise, you now know how and why the task is actually carried out. And then comes the sensitivity to operations. You amend the procedure to reflect how the task is actually done. You close the gap between work as imagined and work done. And he just saw that as a no-brainer, but talking to him about, well, the reason we need to update the procedure is we might have somebody new, we might have an apprentice doing that, and we want to stop them getting covered in oil. Now, we also said reluctance to simplify is an important HRO characteristic. And as you heard in episode two, the causes of fatalities were typically a combination of factors, generally system factors, and to blame these fatalities solely on human error would be to simplify too much and miss the key learnings. Here's Bobby again talking about the dangers of simplification, particularly in investigations. Reluctance to simplify is one of the other HRO principles, and this really plays out in in one area for us in investigations. So really making sure in our, we use an ICAM methodology, that we're taking a no-blame approach to that, and they're really seeking to understand deeply what it is that's actually caused this issue. What are the organisational factors that are underlying where people have taken a particular action? What's caused them to do that? Um, What are the absent or failed defences as well? So it's really about that mentality of being really curious and diving deeper to understand what's actually behind it. And now you'll hear some echoes of another concept we spoke about. We've applied another aspect within the ICAM methodology called work as normal, work as intended and work as done. And this this has been a bit of a game changer for us in really helping to understand not just what happened in the incident and what did the procedure say the person should have been doing, but actually what is normally done in this space. And Bobby says... This is all about curiosity. And it really starts from that perspective of curiosity. So I would call the reluctance to simplify in our everyday language curiosity and trying to really understand what's driving that. So staying with curiosity, but returning to a preoccupation with failure, also known as chronic unease, a key part is identifying and investigating weak signals. In terms of chronic unease, we talk a lot about strong response to weak signals. And one of the things that I think some of the looking at metrics and actually looking at those in real time with dashboards and so on, we can help amplify some of those weak signals and amplify the signals out of, out of the noise as well so that people can respond to those in real time and, and not waiting until we've actually had an event. We need to find and fix the hazards before they find us, but we also need to report them so we can learn from that. So this is a great example of a weak signal. If you're getting reports of near misses in the form of HPIs, but nobody's reporting hazards before they create these near miss situations, then this is a weak signal. And it's telling you that your hazard reporting is not up to scratch. Now, staying with weak signals, Bobby told me how BHP are using artificial intelligence to identify the leading indicators to incidents. We've started working with machine data learning and safety metrics to look at whether or not we can actually predict safety events. There's a lot of leading indicators that can influence and actually predict the the safety outcomes rather than just correlation, which is what we've always worked with in the past. So this is pretty game-changing to the safety field because imagine being able to actually know as a a supervisor or a leader that I've got a high chance, an 80% chance, that's that's the kind of 
accuracy that we're getting at the moment in the models that I'm going to have an injury in my area in the next six hours. That's quite powerful to be able to actually intervene. Even more powerful is understanding why you're at increased risk of injury in the next six hours and then actually working ahead of time on that so that you don't have that increased risk of injury. Bobby says you can actually see the metrics that help you predict when incidents will occur. We're actually seeing the input metrics are actually the things that go right. So when you have quality field leadership observations, when you're doing critical control observations across all of your risks, when you're adhering to planned maintenance, your safety outcomes are going to be much better. So you are actually measuring what goes right. And Bobby's overall thoughts on this? I'm not the computer guru, but gosh, it's exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So let's speak briefly about culture. People at all levels of the organisation need to understand the benefits of reporting and noticing weak signals. They need to be aware that how they behave will have effects right through the organisation. And to talk about this, here's Matt O'Neill from Glencore. I suppose the way we're looking to try and change that, just within the operations that I look after, is actually trying to address people's beliefs. Actually changing the way someone sees themselves and sees why they're at work and even sees the activities that they're doing is, I think, a really key part of trying to get that changed. So understanding that there are some paperwork and there are some procedures and documents that you need to understand. I think one of the activities we talk to and we talk about is if we were to put a camera, uh, a web stream or live stream, what you were doing on a day-to-day basis back to your wife, back to your husband, back to your kids, would you do the same things? And I think that a lot of times the questions you can see, the faces of people sort of going, oh, Actually, if my wife or my family or whatever, you know, my mum or dad knew I was doing this, they'd probably not be overly impressed and say, oh, well, that's probably something you'd like to want to think about. We'd just say we're clear we're not putting a camera in someone's head. (laughs) (laughs) And this whole process of workers being involved in this process and playing a key role in HROs is reiterated by Stephen Smythe from the CFMEU. I think what we can do at a worker level to be better is for workers, they are their own safety officer, number one. Two, if you're going to rely on the regulator or the union safety rep or the union check inspector to come and fix your issues, then that's not the right approach either. There's times when they've got to intervene to assist, but I think it's up to the workers to feel empowered. And that empowerment's got to come from being able to speak up without fear of reprisal, without fear of intimidation, without fear of bullying. And this brings us all the way back to ensuring that it's safe to speak up that there's psychological safety and that there's a reporting culture. Here's the Commissioner again. I think when you're looking at the adoption of HRO theory, I think the biggest challenge our industry has is actually looking at culture change. And the Commissioner believes that the right place to start this journey is with a gap analysis. We've actually been on this journey for many years and it's been with different names, but we've actually implemented certain of the characteristics. So I think the first step the industry actually has to do is a gap analysis, understand where they are on the journey, what is their strengths and what is their weaknesses. So one starting place is for an organisation to take the five characteristics of HROs and check how their company stacks up against them. Here's Peter Newman, Chief Inspector for Coal Mines in Queensland. Most organisations would identify with at least a couple of those principles. Some would say, yep, we're already doing four of them. And it'd be useful for the industry to actually do a profile of the organisations to see where they actually are in terms of being HROs. 
because the assumption is that there aren't any HROs out there because we continue to have fatalities. I'd suggest that there are some organisations which are not far off being an HRO without knowing that that's what they are. The challenge is getting those, organ those smaller organisations to the level of the larger organisations who have got the resources required to get those five principles working and working well. Russell Wilson from Borrell also raised the challenge for smaller operations, particularly quarries. And he believes one thing that will really assist is to have a better transfer of knowledge in the industry. I think the question is, how does the whole industry get to that? The only way that will happen is if we can have a far greater transfer of knowledge across all levels of the industry. There's sectors of the industry that probably don't have a lot of exposure to what I would call mainstream support other than what they see through the department. And I think the department has a significant role to play in terms of the collection of the information, the analysis of that information and the dissemination of that information in a form that is, uh, that is usable and, and helpful. As Russell says, there's a huge opportunity for organisations to learn from the regulator. But there's also an opportunity to learn from each other. To Bobby Foote, this form of learning can be industry-wide. I think if we look at the HRO principle of commitment to resilience, it'd be really great if we had a look at that as a whole industry and made a collective commitment to resilience so that we can all learn and respond together to what we're to the incidents that we're having and, and the data that we've seen. I think one of the other challenges that I think we need to solve as a mining industry is to have a look at the data that we actually collectively have and how we can enable better sharing of that because we shouldn't be competing on health and safety. You shouldn't be competing on health and safety. A very simple concept, but organisations do it all the time. Now, if you do pursue HRO principles, how long will it be before you see results? If you aspire to be an HRO and start applying these practices, but bear in mind, nearly all companies are doing some of them already, so it's not starting from ground zero. How long will it take to see a result? Well, that's actually quite a tricky question because it, it depends on how you want to measure yourself. But it's not something that's going to happen next week if we start now. These programmes are typically 18 months to three years if you're going to deliver effective and sustainable organisational change. Some call it culture change, and that's a fair description too. I asked Rob Jackson how long it took them to see results for the changes they implemented in Cannington Mine. The lead times involved in seeing the benefits of changes you're making is measured in years, not, not months. So if I look at the journey we went through at Cannington, there was probably the first 12 to 18 months where we didn't actually see a whole lot of benefit at all. There, you could start to see some green green shoots and some, some bright lights coming through, but we basically had to hold the line and say, no, no, we know this is going to deliver the outcomes that we want. We're just going to hold true to, to our plan. And so it was probably that second and maybe third year where we really started to see significant improvements coming through. So it is really difficult to actually measure is what we're doing working because it's just such a long time before you start seeing some of these results come through. So I believe the way forward for the Queensland mining and quarrying industry is to embrace and implement the characteristics of HROs. Now this will come at a cost, but there are many other industries that have applied these characteristics and the mining industry can learn from them. So why do I believe HROs are the way forward? 
Well, to understand why, you need to step back to when you first pressed play on the first episode of this podcast. In episode one, we looked at why now was the time for change. And you heard that if change doesn't happen, then past behaviour suggests that there'll be more fatalities. In episode two, you heard about the causes of these fatalities. We discussed about how they rarely had a single cause. Instead, they were due to a combination of everyday factors that came together to result in a fatality. And the most important takeaway from this analysis was that while human error was present in some of these fatalities, it was rarely the sole cause. It was the system errors that typically allowed these human errors to culminate in a fatality. In episode 3 we examined serious accidents and you heard how they were usually caused by a failure to identify the hazard or a failure to control the hazard. And you also heard that the industry's response to these accidents was typically to implement administrative controls, some of the least effective controls available. Which brings us to the subject of reporting in episode 4. You heard how systems drift into failure over time, they gravitate to a higher level of risk acceptance. And you heard how a reporting culture was key to identifying this drift. And from there on, you heard all about the characteristics of HROs. And if you do adopt the characteristics of HROs, you become a learning organisation. This gives you the ability to discover and manage unexpected events. And this is really the bottom line. It gives you the ability to anticipate because you're accepting that drift will happen and you're continuously learning and relearning how your organisation actually works. This is what we mean when we say HROs are learning organisations first and foremost. In very simple terms, they're flexible, adaptive organisations focused on learning how their operations actually work. They're interested in getting reports on the hazards they face, the incidents that happen, the procedures that are not reflective of how work is actually done. They're not afraid of bad news. In fact, they embrace it because they can learn from it and make improvements. They're suspicious of simple answers, such as blaming human error. And they accept that errors will happen, people are fallible, And they better have the resilience in their system to cope with that. And this is why I believe that adopting HRO characteristics is the way forward for the industry. Because they are what's needed for change to happen. So if we do all this and get it right, what does it look like? Well... I thought we'd end this series with some final thoughts from some of the people you've heard from. To start, here's Peter Wilkinson from Noetic. I don't want to go to any more serious fires, explosions or fatalities. I've been to far too many of those. I've been asked a few times what success looks like in this environment. I strongly believe that if we were to apply HRO principles in a more considered and thorough way, we'll also have a more sustainable industry. So it makes sense to get as reliable as possible in our operations. It's good for the bottom line, it's good for people, it's good for our reputation, and it's what's needed to be sustainable in the broadest sense. Russell Wilson, Borrell. I grew up on a farm, and it was absolutely normal for someone to get hurt. It was okay, and it was expected that someone's going to fall off a horse or someone's going to hit a tree, or now one generation on... 
I see a significant shift in my brothers and their families as compared to what it was when I grew up. And I think in some cases, some of our industry is sort of still in that space. We've got a lot of work to do in terms of changing the perception of our industry, internally as well as externally. Herman Fashing, Resources Safety and Health Queensland. From a personal perspective, what would be a good outcome for the industry? We do adopt the HRO philosophy and approach and the industry embraces that. And I think that journey really starts with the conversations that we've been having here around how do we take those words and turn them into actions and activities. And finally, Kate Dupraer, the Commissioner for Resources, Safety and Health. The story of the Queensland mining industry has been written for more than 100 years. And for much of the time, the mining industry has been had a lot of serious accidents, we've had fatalities and we've had major disasters. The introduction of the current legislation more than 20 years ago started a new chapter in our industry. And we had a good success with it. If you have a look at the graph and you'll see it's been effective in reducing the number of serious accidents and fatalities to a point. However, it is clear that while it's been effective, it has not been sufficient to reduce it to zero serious harm. And that is where I believe the principles of HRO need to come into place. I believe that this is a bright point or a starting point because it serves as a catalyst for change. It's about how we as an industry write our own story and how we as an industry see the future. And if you ask me, for the industry to make sure their next chapter is a safer one, they have to believe that change is possible. And something to remember is that other high-hazard industries have gone on the same journey and made themselves much safer. But the most important thing is, the industry has to want to change. The industry needs to avoid the trap of blaming simple causes for incidents and fatalities, such as human error, and instead dig deeper and identify the system causes, and then do something about them. It needs to stop believing that procedures guarantee predictability and focus on how work is actually happening. It needs to accept that you can't keep people safe with reams of paperwork. It needs to move up the hierarchy and select harder forms of controls. It needs to change its views on hazard and incident reporting to ensure it gets the information to know where the dangers are. And it needs to accept that people are fallible and have a system resilient enough to cope with that. This is how you chart out the journey to a safer future. You've been listening to Rethinking Safety, a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. Our objective for this podcast is to reinvigorate the conversation about safety in mining. This podcast was written and produced by Brady Hayward in partnership with Wavelength Creative. Archival audio provided by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales and additional audio by Colin Tyrus. I'm Sean Brady and thank you for listening to Rethinking Safety.